0: Chapter eight of Red Arrows in the Night by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter eight. As we quietly opened the hall door and slipped inside, we saw standing before the lighted logs the figure of the valet. His voice was very hoarse. Where's your car? he demanded. Is it your business? Tim shot back. But I, bent on antagonizing him no more than necessary, explained in what was certainly considerably less than the truth. Engine trouble. We'll go back and take a look at it in the morning. His voice was grindingly ironical. Your uncle was worried, he said, as if he conferred the uncle on all three of us. He is so interested in your welfare, and with the archer abroad. I faced him from a vantage point on the lowest step of the stairs. What do you know of a tramp that wasn't a tramp? In an arrow that wasn't shot from a bow. The valet's look was a deliberate insult. "'I gave up answering riddles when I was seven years old,' he said, and before I could think of a fitting retort, he had melted into the swinging door that always seemed to devour him without its opening. Tim and I were busy before dinner, planning our course to the last detail. We carefully laid out dark golf clothes. From our bags we took our officer's sidearms, went over them carefully, and slipped them under the mattress, where we could get them immediately before we left. Then we dressed carefully for dinner, and strolled down like the two young officers on a vacation that we were supposed to be. The dinner gong brought Madame Leclerc to join us. She was leaning with artistic dignity on the arm of Beth. They both wore evening dress. Indeed, the whole party had taken a very formal turn. Not so the uncle, who was wheeled into the room by the valet. He wore his full, loose dressing gown, in which alone he seemed to be completely comfortable. He waved us to our places, but not until the three of us had flaunted our grace in his face. Then, while Madame Leclerc released the reservoir of her speech, he kept leaning first at us, and then out into the gathering dusk, the restless lightning of his nervous glances. If he wasn't a very nervous, frightened, worried man, I missed my diagnosis. Once he shot at him unexpectedly, tensely. "'Where were you this afternoon?' calling at the fort, Tim answered, with once more inadequate truth. Again the uncle forced himself into a brief pan of patriotism. How fine and secure we rest, he said stiltedly, and sincerely, in the protection of that fortress. No foreign foe dare touch our shores, thank the stars. America is at last awake, at last awake. His oration seemed to thin off into banal repetitions, As overtone to his talk, there was the endless obligato of the primatanas' thought-empty chatter. I know we sat waiting for the coming of the archer, but there was no sight of him. I know that we were torn between relief and regret. Warm as the night was, the uncle had insisted that the long windows be closed and locked. That may have thwarted the archer, though I doubted it. He had, I believe, a way of passing through such things as closed doors and barred windows. After dinner, the valet reappeared to wheel the uncle back to his apartment, and the rest of us found our way to the big drawing-room. Madame Leclerc sang a little in that relic of a voice of hers. Tim and Beth danced to the music of the recording machine, there being nothing suitable on the radio, and I sat and smoked and planned a little more carefully for the night. We retired at eleven, with the elaborately and sincere goodnights of people acting their respective roles. I saw from my window the splash of light that fell from the uncle's apartments, and after going through the careful routine of undressing, I crawled into bed, mustered as completely as I could, crawled out again, put on my golf togs, slipped the automatic into a shoulder holster, tried my flash with a fresh battery against the palm of my hand, and sat down to smoke and wait. Our time was set for a quarter after twelve. Hardly had the hall clock chimed its warning than I was out in the hall. Tim's door opened and he emerged. As I joined him down the hall, Beth's door opened too. She stood for a second, waiting for us to join her. "'No soap,' said Tim, facing her half-angrily. "'You are not included in this party tonight.' "'That's what you think,' Beth retorted, so softly, but so emphatically, that I knew discussion would be wasted. Tim's protest was silenced as she put one hand over his mouth. Then for the briefest second she was gone.' to return carrying, of all things in the world, her bow. As she turned, I noticed that under her soft, ample cloak was a clear outline of a quiver. "'What in the world?' demanded Tim, and in answer she swung open her cloak. How she managed it, I don't know. Woman's magic, of course, but out of what were on closer inspection, a pair of slacks and a loose blouse, she had fashioned what, for all the world, looked like the costume of the archer himself.' Or was it the archer's own uniform? She read the flash of doubt in my face. She dipped into her quiver and held out an arrow. Not red, you see, she answered. I'm still a counterfeit, not the original. From her belt, she pulled a soft hat, held it up for a moment until we silently admired the cocky feather, and then thrust it back into its hiding place. We stole down the stairs, out of doors, into the deepest shadow, over our cliff until we stood before the magnificently camouflaged entrance to the cave. Tim and I shed our cloaks, Beth held hers tightly around her, and we slipped through the narrow entrance and into the musty blackness beyond. This time we knew what to look for, and we soon found it. We moved close to the wall until the light of our flash revealed what we sought, the end of an electrical connection, carefully hidden in a crevice, but joined immediately to bright, shining copper wire. All that would be needed would be contact with a battery, a release of the spark, and along that copper wire could flow death and destruction to the fort above. Now our task of finding our way through the cave was much simplified. I caught the wire with my thumb and finger, gave my left hand to Tim, who held best hand in his right, and we followed, slowly, almost painfully, but none the less surely, the wire that was stretched carefully along the wall. At intervals we stopped to flash a light briefly the wire was leading us, and giving us a sense of certainty that almost nothing else could have given us. We slipped out of the main vestibule and into the secondary corridor. Around us, as before, were the sounds of the underground river, and the drip, drip, drip of water falling from the tessellated roof. I flashed my light reassuringly, and then extinguished it again. I have never had much faith in what the motion picture people call the double-take. You know, the way the characters have of looking at something— not seeing it, turning away, realizing that they have seen something without recognizing it, and looking back in a swift, darting glance of recognition. Well, I believe in it now. Precisely that is what I did. Among the rocks was a long mound covered with a canvas. I had seen it without seeing it. I had turned away and doused my light, and even as I did, I had known that I must look again. The second flash of my light brought us all to attention. Carefully, Almost daintily, I played the golden light along the length of the canvas. None of us needed to ask what it was. Beth hung back a bit, but we men pushed forward, eagerly, fired with that fierce curiosity that men feel for the dead. I slipped back the canvas. It was the dead, all right. There, cold and mobile, but deader seeming than when first we had discovered him, lay the body of our tramp. "'So that's where they took him,' Tim muttered. "'They must be rushed,' I argued, "'if they didn't take time out to bury him. "'If they just left him here while they worked ahead.' "'Couldn't it almost mean,' asked Beth, "'that they are near the end of their work "'and could let his burial wait until their work is finished?' "'Smart girl,' patted Tim. "'And though I had not precisely the complete approval "'of the young woman that he had, "'I knew that she had hit on something very probable.' let's speed i ordered finding the copper wire once more i led them on our tortuous way what a torturous way it was over rough rocks around damp cold stone columns up to narrow openings through which we had to find a difficult way up steep inclines down sharp declivities on and on past the point where we had stopped on our first visit into a corridor completely new to all of us once we paused for light I felt Tim loosen the gun in his holster. I followed suit. The cold feel of that butt was reassuring. The gold old equalizer, Damon Runyon calls it. A not unflattering name. All the while I kept my eyes glued on my wristwatch. We were working with time for our other consideration, for we had figured with the FBI men as closely as possible the time when we would reach a point near the outlet of the cave. They were to be waiting there when we drove, or, if we drove, our victims into the open. Yet I had lost all sense, not of time, but a distance. How far had we crawled? How much tunnel still remained? We had listened too intently, and caught no responsive sound of human activity, only the rush of the river, the wearisome drip of the falling drops of water. Another narrow opening, which brought us into damp, dark clay up to our shoe-tops, and we emerged on the other side, where we heard the unmistakable sounds for which we had been waiting, that rhythmic tapping once more. Now we knew what it meant, the hammer driving into the rock wall, the supports of the copper wire. Then we heard the low sound of voices, and as we turned a sharp corner, a distant light flashed. There they were, still far off, but across what seemed like a great auditorium for probably at this point, we figured, under the munition warehouse above the cave widened into a vast room. It was beautiful as the faint dream of a fairy castle, for the light by which at the far end the three men were working reflected from the crystal and rock and quartz that ornamented ceiling and walls and floor. Along the sides the ceiling was low. It seemed almost as if nature's architect had planned aisles on either side. Then in the center it curved upward high and vaulting. But I could see that above the place where the men stood was a sort of low-hanging balcony, like the one above us. Their heads, seemed in silhouette, seemed almost to touch the roof. Up to that point everything had seemed so simple. Our plan had been as easy as the stalking of our own shadows. Now that we saw our quarries across the room of stone and shadowy darkness, we were completely stumped. Undoubtedly they were armed as well as we were, undoubtedly they would allow themselves to be taken only as a last resort and of a sudden i had a sick feeling that one point in our plan had been overlooked quite confidently the fbi men had said they would enter from the far exit of the cave which was probably somewhere around the fortress but in the rush of confidence inspired by their presence we had not first gone with them to look for that exit or entrance had they found it were they waiting for our cry or our shot as signal to close in on the other side I pulled my two comrades down beside me in the darkness of that natural isle. From behind a huge boulder we watched the men. They were working like beavers at a breaking dam. Clearly this was the end of their trail, for they were swinging the copper around, bringing it down to the point at which it would eventually be hooked to the high explosive, set no doubt for the moment when next that craft put into the cove, sometime after the arsenal was stocked with munitions. I realized as I watched that in a few minutes they would be through, when they would either escape through that far exit, wherever it might be, or retrace their steps and stumble over us, or be lost to us in the infinite variety of shadowy walks that makes its perfect ambush. We had to act, F.B.I. or no F.B.I., and act at once. Silently but effectively I motioned Beth and Tim to the safety of some high rocks. Beth slipped behind one, that rose tall, almost in the shape of a thin, pointed cone, and I saw her rest a slim shoulder against it for protection. Now, I whispered to Tim. Then, in a loud voice to the men at work, all right, stay right where you are. You're covered, and you might as well come quietly. Never before had I seen men move so quickly. Without shadow of doubt, these were not ordinary sailors or workmen, but men trained to raise their fine discipline, skilled to immediate action. Evidently, they had been working by the light of strong pocket flashes before I could finish my command, long before the bouncing echo had leaped from wall to wall and returned to slap us in the face. Their lights were out, and the vast hall was plunged into terrifying darkness. I know, I groaned. What to do now? Even as we debated, they would be slipping out through the exit, perhaps into the arms of the waiting FBI, but more likely to escape in safety but that resistless impulse that makes a man pull the trigger of the gun in his hand must have gripped one of the men. There was a blinding flash of light, man-made lightning that filled the cave with an instant brilliance, and with it that terrifying roar of thunder that accompanies a shot indoors. That thunder rolled and echoed paralyzingly around us. Then a second roar of thunder, far, far more terrifying than the first, a thunder that was not only of the rending heavens, but of a torn and tortured earth. THAT WAS IT EXACTLY, LIKE THE NOISE OF AN EARTHQUAKE. GREAT HEAVENS, TIM SHOUTED AT MY EAR, AS THE SOUND ROLLED AND ROARED AND CRASHED INTO FINAL SILENCE. WHAT WAS THAT? PART OF THE CEILING COLLAPSED, I HAZARDED, AND EVEN AS I SAID IT, THERE WAS A WILD SCREAM OF PAIN. JUST ONE, AND THEN SILENCE. DESPERATELY FROM BEHIND THE SHELTER OF MY ROCK, I FLASHED MY LIGHT. THE PICTURE AT THE FAR END OF THE HALL WAS NOW ENTIRELY CHANGED. One of the galleries, the very one under which the men had stood, was now a hill of rubble. My flash lighted for a moment the still body of one man pinioned under the broken rock. The repercussion of a shot from a heavy service revolver had broken the delicate balance of the rock and sent it crashing down. On how many of the men? I wished I knew. One thing, though, was more than likely. The falling roof had blocked the exit, preventing the escape of any of the men who might still be alive. But horrible second thought. It had cut off the approach of the FBI men or the sheriff and his party. I hazarded a cry. "'Come out!' I shouted, spacing my words between the rebounding echoes. Tensely we waited for a reply. None came, but we heard noises as of rocks being displaced and scattered by the cautious movement of someone walking or crawling. "'Come out!' I cried, and this time we got an answer. The voice was thick and heavy, blurred by an unmistakable guttural accent. Come and get us before we come and get you. He had said we. Was he bluffing? Were there two of them still left? Or had other workers joined them under cover of the darkness? Tim lifted his automatic to fire toward one voice. Don't! Beth cried, catching his arm. She pointed to the low ceiling that poised in balance above us. Might not a shot from our guns do for our ceiling what the other shot had done for theirs? Might we not, as the result of a single blast, be buried under the rubble of rock that had for centuries been held in suspension, waiting for a fatal shot? The sound of small scattered stones continued. In the tense, echo-responsive air, it like could sense movement, men going or coming, moving towards us to attack, escaping toward an exit of whose existence we did not even know. Suddenly it was Beth who took command— "'Can you scream as if in fright?' she demanded. I nodded. Tim nodded, too. "'Then you and the men are going to see the skirted archer in his or her ghostly flesh.' She dropped her heavy cloak. Even in the darkness against the white of that tall, cone-like-protecting pillar of quartz, I saw what was without a doubt a perfect reproduction of the archer. "'If they are sailors,' she whispered, "'they may not be afraid of bullets.' BE SURE THEY'LL BE AFRAID OF A GHOST WHO SHOOTS RED ARROWS. RED ARROWS? I ECHOED IN PROTEST, FOR I REMEMBERED CLEARLY THAT HER ARROWS WERE YELLOW VARNISHED WOOD. WAIT A SECOND, SHE ORDERED. ACCUSTOMED TO THE DARKNESS, I COULD SEE THAT SHE WAS RUBBING lipstick UP AND DOWN THE LENGTH OF THREE ARROWS IN HER HAND. NOW, SHE COMMANDED, TAKING OUR RANK AND AUTHORITY AWAY FROM US BY THE peremptory CHARACTER OF HER WORDS, DO EXACTLY AS I SAY i shall step to the right of the court's column as i do that both of you flash your lights on me scream for all your worth scream the scarlet archer i'll shoot once and step back behind the column then scream and pretend to struggle in the darkness as if you were fighting with a ghost then flash your lights on me again a second arrow i won't let you protested tim furiously I'M SORRY, TIM, BUT YOU'RE NOT IN COMMAND NOW. YOU YIELDED RANK TO ME THIRTY SECONDS AGO. ARE YOU READY?" READY, I WHISPERED, AND DURING THE NEXT FIVE SECONDS I poured FORTH A VOLUME OF PRAYER THAT NEVER BEFORE IN MY LIFE OF FAITH HAD I EVEN MATCHED. NOW, WHISPERED BETH, JUMPING TO THE RIGHT OF THE COLUMN. WITH A SINGLE SYNCHRONIZED MOVEMENT WE MEN FLASHED OUR LIGHTS. THERE SHE STOOD, TALL, BRILLIANTLY LIGHTED, FOR ALL THE WORLD, THE SCARLET ARCHER RISEN FROM THE GRAVE or the cave to pour his arrows on our enemies with a speed i could not have dreamed possible she whipped an arrow to the bowstring and sent it speeding from the brilliant golden light across the darkness toward the sounds that indicated the escaping men the instant she did so tim and i in voice that must have been convincingly high with terror screamed the scarlet archer Grand and us rolled the echoes we extinguished our lights in the instant and saw Beth slip back behind her protecting column the echoes died to silence and then the shower of stones grew heavier and more insistent the men were frightened all right can you in the darkness i whispered to beth send a shower of arrows their way she stood there in the black cave as fearless as if she were on the target range of st elizabeth's and through the air we heard the swish of arrows they pinged against the rock but evidently one did not ping and we heard a quick cry smothered perhaps by a hand Let's try the apparition again, Beth breathed into my ear. No, Tim protested, gripping her wrist, but she shook him off. Again. Again we leveled our flashes, waiting for her signal. This time she stepped to the left of the column. Again we flashed our lights. Again she fitted her red arrow and sent it speeding across the hall. Again we screamed in mock, but excellently counterfeited terror. The Scarlet Archer! Back she stepped into the shadow of the column, and I flashed off my light. Then, to my horror, I saw that Tim's flash had not gone off. By one of those fatal accidents that happened to the best of gadgets, his flash stuck. The full blaze of his light lingered on the column behind which Beth was hiding. Perhaps their superstitious fears had blasted their courage. Perhaps a kind of desperation forced their trigger-fingers to do the tragic thing they would not, in cold blood, even have considered. I do not pretend to know, and none of us was ever able to ask but suddenly, across the cave, the men began blasting at us with what were undoubtedly heavy service revolvers. There was a fierce barrage of lightning. There was thunder that deafened us, and flung a spot on our stomachs. Then, like the cracking of a planet and the explosion of a star, came the roar of that cave about us. This time it was not a single ceiling that seemed to fall, but half a cave, pounding in tons of missiles, about the stone floor, shaking the columns back of which we lay— gripping us with a horror that left us paralyzed, unable to do more than wait for the extinguishing of our own lives. But that did not come. With incredible swiftness, the cave lapsed again into silence. A belated rock fell crashing into the blackness. Then a silence that was like the moment of waiting before the general judgment. Almost fearfully, I dared to whisper, Are you all right? Right, answered Tim and to my infinite relief, Beth broke into sobs. I was glad she was not an Amazon, after all. I was glad that her bravery had ended in that womanly flood of tears. I don't think either of us needed to be told that under that rocky avalanche were buried our unknown enemies, whoever they might be. Still we lay there, scarcely daring to breathe in the hideous darkness, until we were sure that no slightest movement was waking the echoes of the cave. Then slowly I played my flashlight across the scene of utter wreckage the whole far ceiling had caved in. Masses of rocks were piled in a miniature mountain range, under which, we needed no investigation to make it clear to us, they buried three, perhaps more, men. The explosive doom they had prepared for others had by the decree of just providence fallen upon themselves. We sat clinging to one another's hands, the darkness and silence almost a relief after the catastrophe which had destroyed one half of our little underground world, and left the three of us unscathed. "'I think a prayer of thanksgiving is in order,' said Tim. "'I've already said it,' Beth replied. Yet as we were praying again, we heard voices coming from the away by which we had entered the cave, and then the flash of lights. Our first thought was the possible enemies. Our second was the glad reassurance that the FBI men had found us, if they had not found the other entrance. They had found ours, about which we had carefully told them.' and they were coming to take us back. The tallest of the men arrived first. Safe? He asked superfluously. We nodded. I found the wire. You were right. And the dead man, too. Where are the others? I think all three of us pointed to the mighty mausoleum that nature herself had erected above them. It's hard to feel otherwise than reverent and overwhelmed in the presence of death, even your enemy's death. We parted at the top of the cliff, the FBI men and the sheriff taking their car back to the village. We three followed the shadowy pathway home. Just as we turned toward the blackness of the hedge, Tim grabbed my arm and pointed. There was a figure in the shadow ahead of us. He was almost dashing toward the house. Only as he came close to the house, he swerved to the side. And in the instant, as his profile came between us and the sky, we knew him. Had he been one of the men in the cave and had he escaped? Had he been waiting for news of our death, eager to carry it back to Tim's uncle? Or what other villainous work had carried him out into the night? We stood watching his movements intently, until he disappeared. Then we walked slowly toward home, in the train of the sinister valet. End of chapter 8 Recording by Maria Therese